Okay, so I know uh, that it's already February. I know that we've already done the Happy New Year introduction to a sermon. I've already done that. But I want to ask you, this is the last time, I promise. I want to ask you about 2016. What, what, in your opinion, was the most newsworthy thing that happened in 2016? Because 2016 was a crazy year, right? You had, you had Brexit. You had a coup in Turkey, a failed one. You had uh, North Korea testing nuclear weapons. You had uh, Russia interfering with the U.S. election. You had Donald Trump winning the election. I mean, there was some crazy things happening in the news in 2016. What what do you think was the most newsworthy thing that happened in 2016? Because I can tell you what readers of the New York Times felt was the most important thing the Times printed in 2016. Because uh, I I saw a statistic, the single most read article in the New York Times in 2016 had nothing to do with Brexit or Trump or Russia or Syria's civil war or or, uh, Turkey or North Korea or anything like that. The most read article in the New York Times in 2016 starts like this. It's one of the things we're most afraid might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. The most read article in the New York Times in 2016 was called, You Will Marry the Wrong Person. People talked about that more than Korea, Brexit, Trump, the whole nine yards. That's what people engaged in. When I saw that, that was the most read article, I thought that has to be a part of our dinner conversations Series, Because this is a series that we do pretty well every year where we set aside a few Sundays, excuse me, we set aside a few Sundays to talk about issues that come up around our dinner tables with our families, talk about family-related issues. And so this week, we're talking about a little bit about marriage and about who we marry, why we marry, and how we marry, and how marriages work. Next week, we're talking about parenting at different stages and so on. And uh, we're just spending a couple weeks talking about family situations. Now, I just want to say at the front end of the series that I know every time we do a series like this, we take a little bit of a risk because you talk about marriage and not everybody in the room is married. And you talk about parenting and not everybody in the room is a parent. And I get that our church is filled with people who are from non-traditional family backgrounds. Um, And so we try to make the material Like this morning, the material is relevant to anybody who is married or anybody who wants to be married. And even if you're done with marriage, you're not married, you don't want to be married, you could take this material and tweak it a little bit just to think through the lens of friendship and your most significant relationships. But in this series, what we want to do, being aware of that, the third week of this series is going to be a panel discussion that's going to be basically Q&A that we'll have received from you uh, with questions that you submit about this is where faith and family intersect in my unique circumstances, what do I do about that? And so hopefully this series can be open and inclusive and everybody can participate, even if something's not directly relevant to you. It's relevant to someone you love and you can walk with them through it. But this morning, I want to look at this article and even respond to it a bit. This article, it says, You Will Marry the Wrong Person by Alain de Botton in the New York Times. Now, uh, de Botton says there's basically... Uh, and by the way, I don't speak French, so I have no idea if I'm saying his name right, but such is it. Um, 
He says there's basically two reasons why we're guaranteed to marry the wrong person. The first one is this. Because the, the process of dating is broken. And basically what he says in his article is, you know, especially for people who get into it young and who are getting serious about relationships when they're young, we get into these dating relationships. We don't even know ourselves. Like, we don't understand our own brokenness, our own craziness. And the parts of it that we do understand, we're certainly not going to expose to the other person, so we do our studious best to hide that side of us from the other person. And he says, and the other person is doing the same with us. That the process of dating is basically two people coming together in a relationship where they've agreed to lie to each other about who they are in the hopes of disguising the fact that they are, in fact, unfit for a long-term relationship. Right? Uh, so a friend of mine said to me once, you know, when we were dating, I was surprised at how similar we are. And then we got married, and I'm surprised at how different we are. And that's totally true. Because when you're married, you can't hide the rest of who you are. Right, it just sort of comes out. And that's when you realize the person you married is not the person you thought you married. Um, he says this, he says, marriage ends up as a hopeful, generous, infinitely kind gamble taken by two people who don't yet know who they are or who the other might be, binding themselves to a future they cannot conceive of, having carefully avoided investigating. That's the reality. And you know what? I've been doing marriages for 20 years. And for the first 10 or 15, I did all the premarital counseling for the marriages that I did all by myself. And I'm going to tell you that it's true. You sit in these sessions with couples, and they're not interested in disclosing the brokenness and the craziness. They're holding each other's hand and staring into each other's eyes. And they're giving you the answers that they know you want to hear. It's just, even couples that want to go there and figure it out, there's just no way to know how your craziness and, and their craziness are going to come together in the craziness of marriage. You just can't predict it. You will not know until you find out. A friend of mine, I had a lunch with him last week, he said his pastor in Virginia was just done with premarital counseling. He said, unless you talk to a couple six months before marriage, you have to wait till six months after marriage. Because in that middle time, in the final marriage preparation, in the honeymoon phase, there's just, there's just no point. There's no point. And, uh, and that's just... That's just real. Uh, De Bouton says, one of the first questions we should ask when we're dating somebody is, and so how are you crazy? Right? But we don't. We lie to each other. And that's why we'll marry the wrong person. The second reason he gives is this, because we marry for the wrong reason. Marriages, he says, used to be put together by a community of people. They were arranged for really pragmatic reasons, right? Our family needs land, or we need money, or we need social status, or we need to protect our family lineage, or we need political stability, or we need religious, you know, to reinforce <clears throat> our shared religious values. And so communities of people arranged marriages, but that's not what happens anymore. We get married because of how we feel. We get married because of how we want to feel. We want marriage to make us happy, and it can't. Marriage, he says, these are his arguments. He says, marriage doesn't make us happy because uh, our own brokenness can only attract broken people, right? Unhealthy, broken people aren't attractive to healthy and whole people, right? So crazy attracts crazy. He says, and a second reason, he says, lonely people are too desperate to be discerning, right? Often, you just want to be married so bad that you'll marry the person who agrees to marry you. Beggars can't be choosers. Um, we 
Mary because we get swept up in this vision provided by a thousand romantic comedies that, that just makes us want to bottle the romance that we felt on our first date or on the proposal night and live that way forever. And he said, the problem is that's not how marriage feels. Marriage is a suburban commuter reality that's filled with kids who are killing the very romance that produced them in the first place. Marriage doesn't feel like your first date. Um, and it's true. Yeah, he's, he's pretty down on arranged marriages. Uh, Kristen and I watched a very interesting documentary on Netflix called Meet the Patels. It's about an East Indian guy who was striking out in the dating scene. And so he asked his Indian parents to arrange a marriage for him. And it's all about this process of arranging marriages. And what you discover is that an arranged marriage is basically communal discernment about relationships. People around you who know you assessing who you are and who they are and how the two of you would fit together in, in a way that's actually providing some sort of objective reality to the process. Now, my marriage isn't arranged and my kids' marriages won't be arranged, but it's interesting to note that in 2012, a global survey said that of marriages done in the North American way, the divorce rate was about 55%. Marriages done in the arranged way, the divorce rate is about 6%. There's probably some other dynamics about traditional cultures, but that's not an insignificant difference. Uh, one of my daughters, when she was about seven, she asked me, Dad, how long do you date somebody before you get to get married? And in an answer that I can say was only inspired by the Holy Spirit, because I'm just not this wise, I looked at my daughter and I said, you know when you're ready to get married? When mom and dad and all three of your sisters and all of your best friends agree that it would be an awesome thing if you got married. That's when you get married. But that's not how we do it. We do it based on this feeling that we want marriage to make us happy. And Alain de Botton says this, we must abandon the romantic idea upon which the Western understanding of marriage has been based the last 250 years, that a perfect being exists who can meet all of our needs and satisfy our every yearning, it won't ever happen. You will marry the wrong person, he says, or you have married the wrong person for two reasons. Number one, because your partner lied to you, but you lied to them, so it's fair. Number two, because Hollywood lied to you. A thousand romantic comedies told you a false truth, an alternative fact about what love is. So what I want to talk about this morning is the kind of love that makes marriage work, even when you've married the wrong person, the reason we get married, and how to respond to the wrong person that you've actually married. And I, I think you should know, I'm an expert in this. If we could put the banner back up from the beginning of the sermon, right? I am Mr. Wrong. So I can talk about this. So here we go. What kind of love... If it's not the romantic comedy kind of love, what kind of love makes a marriage work? Back in the 80s, there was a Yale psychologist by the name of Robert Sternberg who came up with the idea of love's triangle. Not a love triangle. Other people came up with that idea, and it's terrible for marriage. But love's triangle. And what he says is there's three different kind of loves that are all required if marriage is going to work. And the first one is actually the love of the romantic comedy. He called it passionate love. It's what we call chemistry. It's biological. It's sensual and sexual. You have to have that love of attraction, 
right? Where you're just attracted to the other person. And the interesting thing, I'll say this before we get really into it, Sternberg's model, three kinds of love, what makes it interesting is the Bible affirms every one of the three loves that he talks about. And here's the first one, the love of attraction, the passion love that he calls it, um, the Greek word for it is eros. We get our word erotic. It's the erotic love, the erotic side of marriage and dating and so on. In the Song of Solomon, the very first verses of the book, this is what it says. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the women love you. That word love can translate into Eros, no wonder the women are erotically attracted to you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. It's a very sexual uh, thing being expressed. Take me now. The Song of Solomon, interestingly, is a love poem. And there's this chorus that comes up over and over again that says, do not arouse or awaken love until the time is right, until marriage, right? Which is the response that this woman gets. But this is that erotic attraction. Take me. You know, I'm so attracted to you. But that's not the only kind of that romantic, passionate kind of love. That is not the only kind of love that makes marriage work. Sternberg says there's a second kind of love. It's called the love of intimacy, the love of friendship. The Greek word is uh, philia, or philao is the verb, to love someone like a friend or a brother. In fact, you've heard this word in the city named Philadelphia. City of brotherly love, to love someone like you love someone of your own family. It's the, it's the intimacy of friendship, of connection, of uh, knowing the other person and being known by them, of being soulmates. Well, the Bible describes this kind of love in 1 Samuel chapter 18. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. That idea of becoming one spirit. Aristotle says friendship is one soul being carried around by two bodies, right? Two people sharing a single soul. They're soulmates. There's someone who knows you're crazy and who loves you anyway. And you know they're crazy and you love them anyway. And you can be honest and they're trustworthy and they're loyal and they're reliable and they're supportive. And it's everything you want in a best friend. Facebook is doing these videos right now. Friend videos, right? Like, here are all your friends or whatever. Krista texted me this week. She said, Facebook's friend video for me has only pictures of you and our girls. She said, I guess I live with all my best friends, right? That's that friendship love of marriage. But there's a third kind of love. It's called the commitment love of marriage. It's um, a harder kind of love. It's a cognitive love. It's a willful love. It's something you choose more often than you feel. You can feel committed, but more often commitment demands that you choose to be committed even when you don't feel like it. Um, it's the Greek word for that is agape, and it's the kind of love that God is most often described as having for us. In 1 John chapter 3, it says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus died for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We ought to treat each other the way Jesus treated us. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with the actions and in truth. It is an active kind of love. It is a sacrificial love that says, I am willing to die for you. Not in a dramatic, melodramatic kind of a way. Just in saying, I will sacrifice anything. I love you for you. 
and I love you unconditionally, and I will always love you. I love you despite how I feel about you right now, and I am willing to literally give up anything for you. That's Sternberg's love's triangle. I'll put up a picture of the love's triangle right now. Three corners, passion love, intimacy love, commitment love. If all you have is one of those, you don't have the kind of love that it takes for marriage to work. We'll leave this picture up for a bit. Um, The passion love, if that's all you have, if you're not friends and there's no commitment, all you have is infatuation. If all you have is intimacy, you're friends, but you're not really committed and you don't really have any chemistry, you're just friends. And some of you may need to break up with the boy you're dating right now because that's true and you just won't admit it. Um, If all you have is commitment and you're not friends and there's no spark, he says that's just empty. That's not love. That can't sustain a relationship. Neither can it sustain when you only have two of them. So if all you have is passion and intimacy but no commitment, that's just called dating. That's what dating is. There's chemistry and we're best friends but we haven't made a commitment to each other yet. Either of us could walk away at any time. If all you have is commitment and passion, you're committed to being sexual, that's called an affair. If all you have is commitment and intimacy, you're roommates. If there's no spark, you're roommates. None of those make a marriage work. But here's, you need basically all three for marriage to work. Now, just be aware that during the course of your relationship, that triangle is going to change shapes many times. There are going to be seasons where you do have more passion and intimacy than you do commitment. That's your honeymoon. You don't need any commitment to be on a honeymoon. You're best friends and lovers. That's all you need. There are seasons when you'll be more into commitment and passion than you are into friendship, right? When you're trying to have a baby, you could be in the middle of a fight. You could be angry, not even like each other, but you are committed to doing what it takes to try to have a baby because it's that day of the cycle, right? Like, there are times where you will have a lot of commitment and a lot of friendship but no passion. Stress can do that and grief. Those are very unromantic times. The triangle will shape, change shape, but the goal is to get it always back into shape and to grow each side, three equal sides, growing each side as much as you can. That's the love, not the love of romantic comedies. That's the unsexy, unglamorous love that makes marriage work. And even with that love, Baton is right, marriage will not make you happy. It won't. Marriage cannot make you happy. If you're getting married or have gotten married so the other person can make you happy, it's never going to work. Because here's the thing. Happiness is a reality that's internal to you, which means that only you can control your happiness. Einstein said it this way. Pardon me, but this is math. Einstein said happiness is expectation or experience divided by expectation. So for those of you who aren't math majors, this is what it means. When your experience is exactly what you hope for, you are 100% happy. When your experience exceeds what you hope for, mathematically, you're more than 100% happy. You're more than happy. When your experience falls short of what you hope for, you are less than happy. And the further short it falls, the less happy you are. And it makes us think that our happiness depends on our experience, but it doesn't. Our happiness depends more on the other 
factor in that equation, which is our expectation. Einstein says, if you lower, because this is how math works, if you lower your expectation to zero, no matter what happens, you'll be infinitely happy. You are in control of your happiness and only you. Your partner will not make you happy because your partner will disappoint you in every way that love can disappoint you. Trust me, it's true. Because I disappoint Krista in every way you can imagine. I disappoint her in the romantic love. But 10 days ago, she texted me. Said, it's been a long time since we had a date. I think we should go out on Sunday evening. What do you think? I said, capital letters, Y-E-S, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. The date she was proposing was happening at exactly the same time as my Dallas Cowboys were playing their only playoff football game, which I didn't mention to her. Because I was going to be good and I was going to choose marriage ahead of football. I thought, she'll figure it out at some point and see what a good husband I am, or God will reward me for being that committed. So we went to the restaurant. We didn't have reservations, and the hostess said, it's going to be 30 minutes. Why don't you wait in the bar? Where the only TV was, and it was showing the football game, and Krista said, oh, your football game. Why don't you watch while we're waiting for a table? And I said, that's a delightful idea. So we sat and chatted and watched Football, and then the thing rang, right? And she said, I'll go find the hostess. And she stood up, and the hostess was standing right behind her. She was like, oh, you're who I'm looking for. Your table is right here. And she sat us right in front of the football game. And I thought, God is good all the time. I, I chose my wife. I've invest, I'm investing in my marriage, and God gave me the football game as a bonus. Here is a picture of me on that date, Okay. As you can see, I am not facing my wife. I am facing the football game, and those may be tears in my eyes because they lost, right? I am terrible. I'm a horrendous date. I disappoint my wife when it comes to friendship all the time, and your partner will too, right? They won't know you as well as they, you think they should. They won't anticipate your needs. They won't be able to read your mind. If they only knew me, they would know that I, no, nope, guess what? They're not going to do it. I respond, Krista will start a sentence that says, I feel X, Y, and Z, and my response, honestly, more often than not, is, well, don't feel that way. I'm a terrible friend. She will say, you know what's frustrating me right now? This, and my answer will be, I can fix that for you. Like, I am a terrible friend, and it frustrates her. I frustrate her with the commitment kind of love, and your partner will too. They'll pick other stuff ahead of you. They'll pick other people ahead of you. They'll flake out on promises they've made. They'll forget your anniversary. They'll forget, like, it's, it'll happen. One day after Krista had reconstructive knee surgery and was basically immobilized, I got on a plane and flew to South Carolina to watch a NASCAR race with my buddies. Commitments are screwed up. Like, your partner will not make you happy. And the reason that that's not fatal to marriage is that marriage was never about your partner making you happy. Marriage isn't about them making you happy. Marriage is about you contributing to making them whole and holy. Listen to what the Bible says about marriage. Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, though we could just say spouses, love each other, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Your job in marriage, you got married not so that they could make you happy. Your job in marriage is to give yourself to helping your 
partner become the holiest, wholest, healthiest, beautifulest, most radiant, full, complete, pure version of the person God has created them to be as humanly possible. That's your role. And the way you're going to accomplish that goal is by doing what Jesus did. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The commitment, sacrificial side of love. I will sacrifice myself, my hopes, my dreams, my wants, my needs. I will put myself beneath you in order to serve you for what you need. And you are trusting your partner to do the same for you. You are submitting yourself to their needs. You are dying to you in order to serve them so that they can become the most beautiful version of the person God has created them to be. That's what marriage is for. Sounds like a lot of suffering. That's what de Bouton says in his article. He says, when you pick the person to marry, all you're picking is what kind of suffering you're prepared to live with for the rest of your life. And it's pretty pessimistic. But the Bible's vision is a lot bigger than that. Because paradoxically in the Bible, when you give your life for somebody else, the end result of that is joy. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What the writer of Hebrews says is Jesus endured the cross. He died for us. He laughed at the humiliation, the shame that the cross was supposed to heap on him. He laughed it off. Not that the cross was easy, it was painful. But he laughed it off because He anticipated the joy of seeing what would come of our lives because of his death and resurrection. The same thing is true that when we walk in the footsteps of Jesus for the sake of Jesus, by the strength of Jesus, for to do what Jesus did for our partners, and we choose to sacrifice ourselves to watch them become the people God has created them to be, the end result of that for us is joy. So finally, how do you do that for somebody who disappoints you all the time? How do you do that when you've married the wrong person? Well, this is what de Bouton says. This is his solution. He says, we should learn to accommodate ourselves to wrongness. Striving always to adopt a more forgiving, humorous, and kindly perspective on its multiple examples in ourselves and our partners. Basically, he says, grin and bear it. Make the best of it. This is what the Bible says. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to read verses that I read a couple weeks ago that we put on those blue cards. If you didn't take a blue card two, week ago, two weeks ago, stop at the Welcome Center, grab one today as a reminder of the kind of partner you're going to be, either to your, the marriage partner or the dating partner you have now or to the one you will have one day. This is what it says in Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone forgive as the lord forgave you the apostle paul says this this is how you're going to behave in marriage you're going to respond to your partner's brokenness with compassion with empathy with saying i'm sorry your story such as it's been has brought you to the point where this is the brokenness that you experience it breaks my heart to see you this way You're going to respond with kindness to their unkindness to you. 
You're going to respond with humility that says, you know what? I'm probably more messed up than you are. Who am I to criticize? You're going to respond with gentleness and with patience, the willingness to put up with a lot in the midst of the tension and the conflict that the brokenness creates. And above all else, he says, you're going to forgive each other just the same way that Jesus forgave you, which is unlimited, unconditional, and permanent, and free. It's over and done. You're going to forgive the person as, as the Lord forgave you. I, like I've mentioned this before, but like I teach my kids, when one hurts the other, they say, I'm sorry, and the other kid says, not, it's okay, because it's not. They say, I forgive you. Despite the fact that it's not okay, I'm gonna forgive you for what you've done. Now I need to call a timeout and say this. Some of you are in situations where your partner's hurting you in ways that are not okay, that are not incidental, they're not by accident, it's a pattern. Pattern of abuse or assault or neglect or something. And it's not okay. And for you, yes, forgiveness is mandatory. But what we learn from scriptures is that reconciliation comes only when the other person repents, which is to say, I'm sorry for what I've done and I'm actively taking steps to change. You don't have to lower your expectation to zero in order to be happy in an abusive situation. What you do is you love the other person and are kind to them by separating yourself from the situation so that they cannot hurt you and so that you can send the message to them that they are broken and they need to change. The Bible calls it the sorrow that leads to repentance. But my point is, so it doesn't mean you have to take whatever, but my point is you respond the way Jesus has responded to us in everything that comes up in your marital situation. And then he goes on to say this, and over all these virtues put on love, the commitment, sacrifice kind of love, which binds them all together in perfect unity, which makes all the rest of the love work. You love them by sacrificing of yourself to meet their needs for passionate love. Right? Some of you are robbing your spouses of romance. And Krista's rolling her eyes because I suck at this and I need to repent and I need to change the way I am romantically in our marriage. That's just a confession to you. Some of you are robbing your partners of romance. Some of you are robbing your partners of sex. And it's not right. You are killing your marriage by stealing a corner of the triangle and it's got to change. Some of you are doing it because your partners are robbing you of intimacy and friendship. And let me just tell you, when your partner looks at you and say, I need you to be more supportive. I need you to listen to me right now. I need you to do this. I need you to stop hanging out with that person. They're not good for you. I need you to break this self-destructive habit in your life. When your partner looks at you and says, I need you too, your answer is, of course I will. You will sacrifice of yourself to love them in a commitment kind of way. When your partner looks at you and says, I need you to be more supportive of my dreams right now, the answer is, how can I help? When your partner looks at you and says, I need us to go to counseling, your answer is not, we don't need that. Your answer is, when and where, or would you like me to make the call? That's what it looks like to, in the context of the kind of love that makes a marriage work, love a perfectly imperfect partner in the kind of way that will not create happiness, but that will work for the both of you towards 
wholeness that leads to joy. And that, my friends, is how you have the right marriage even though you've married the wrong person. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, only you can show us how to love. We can't do this. We can't do what I've just talked about for the last 30 minutes. We, I don't have it in me. None of us do. None of us can love our partners, present or future, in the same way, as well as, as deeply as, as holy, as unconditionally as you've loved us. We're sorry for all the ways that our love falls short. But thank you that you came and died. You endured the cross and you scorned its shame for the joy of seeing the difference that your death and resurrection can make. Would you forgive us, but also would you change us? Will you fill us with the presence and power of your life and love? Would you bring out the new life you have already placed in us to help us become the right people to love in the right way, to be a part of our partner becoming the right person for the right kind of marriage that you've invited us into? Only you can do that in us. We need you more than anything else. And we give ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.